0: This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey everyone, Matt Davis is here. In this episode of Brain Matters, I sat down to chat with Dr. Brian Derrick, a professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Dr. Derrick has focused his research on a brain structure near and dear to the Brain Matters crew, the hippocampus. Ask a person what the hippocampus does, and they will probably tell you that it is where memory happens. This is true in a sense, but there's a lot more going on. In fact, the hippocampus has several subregions, each of which is characterized by a particular neural architecture. These differing areas have been hypothesized to perform unique memory-supporting functions. Importantly, information flows through the hippocampus via several pathways which has implications for the information processing. For example, much of the pre-processed sensory information from the cortex is sent to a structure called the dentate gyrus, which is the first stop in the hippocampus for information sent along the so-called indirect pathway. There is a direct pathway, but I'll ignore it for now. In the early 1970s, David Marr proposed that the dentate gyrus could perform a function called pattern separation. It is important to have a mechanism that can store similar memories with distinct neural activity or else there may be interference between the memories during retrieval. This is the function that pattern separation serves. After the dentate gyrus, information is routed to an area called the CA3. Cells in the CA3 have a special connectivity, they are wired to themselves. This is an example of an auto-associative network. David Marr proposed that the neural architecture in the CA3 could support pattern completion. This process is important for a robust memory system because it allows a memory to be retrieved in a situation where only partial cues are present. For example, if you saw your friend Andrew from behind, you may see a few cues that define him such as his hair or the plaid shirt he always wears. However, you don't see his face or hear his voice but using these partial cues the brain area CA3 in the hippocampus can retrieve the neural representation of andrew this is the gist of pattern completion pattern separation in the dentate gyrus and pattern completion in the CA3 are well supported by experimental studies however There are other areas of the hippocampus that have specialized roles in memory processing. Anyways, prepare your cochlea for my interview with Dr. Brian Derrick. Let's start at the beginning. Could you tell me about your interest in neuroscience, or science in general, developed?
1: Oh, boy. Okay, well, in general, that's really hard to pin down, Mm -hmm. because I was obsessed with Scientific things when I was a little kid. I guess my parents helped a lot. My dad would drag me out of bed and make me watch the, the rocket take off from of Mercury and the Gemini missions. I was like, oh. So it, that was technology, and you know, it didn't interest me as much as, as other things. But then my grandmother started giving me these books. I don't think they have them anymore, but they're called the Time Life Series. And they're Each book is a book about a scientific field, like matter and energy and weather. Yeah. And every couple of months, I get a new one. And I I think it's something about books. But getting books when I was a kid was just, that changed everything for me. And I just would gobble them up. Yeah. And I love that.
0: In a very serialized fashion, so you're always looking towards the next one. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I got really interested in a lot of things. So the first one I got was weather. So, um, so my first thing I got was a weather station, and I wanted to be a meteorologist. Yeah. So I, I built a weather station, and my father actually sort of put it together. But I was able to do forecasts. And I remember once I had predicted that because of the wind direction, there was a, a chart that came with the weather. And, and, and the barometric pressure and the wind direction would tell you the weather was coming up. So I had predicted um, thunderstorms and eventually snow. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was sort of wrong because I live in Southern California. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. That, so yeah. Los Angeles, you don't see snow much. So, But my ther- parents thought it was cute. So you were just as accurate as normal weather people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I'm a much better accurate neuroscientist. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but then, um, let's see. That's, that, so, so I've been interested in science a lot, and, um, and but I was always interested in different things. I really like chemistry, and I like geology. So I worked at my dad's car lot uh, detailing cars so I could buy lab equipment. So I built a laboratory in my garage. That's a
0: very unique, you
1: know, child activity. It it was because, I mean, I had things like nitric acid and and sulfur. I mean, I had pretty high, heavy-duty compounds. And I I could have easily made things like nitroglycerin or stuff like that. And I Mm -hmm. didn't because I, I had no desire to to lose limbs or anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, but that, that really got me interested in science. So I guess when I went into college, um, my interests were mostly bacteriology and microbiology and I was a microbiology major. And then at UC, UC I was at UCLA and, um, for neuroscience or, well, I would, no, I was, I was, I was my first year as a freshman and I had to work study because my family didn't have a lot of money. So I had to go look for a job, a part-time job to make money. And I, of course, put it off. So, so when I went to uh, Sproul Hall to, f- to figure out you know, which job I was going to get, they were put up in yellow cards. There were only a couple left. None of them fit me. But there was one that said you, you, somebody is needed to tend to people with epilepsy during scientific experiments. And um, people interested in medicine would be probably like this job or stuff. And I'm like, hmm, that's sort of interesting. So, so I went and they told me what I had to do is I had to sit with the patients and hold this plastic thing. And if they had a seizure, I had to put it in their mouth so they would have an open airway. What they were doing was it was a group that was headed by uh, Paul Crandall at the time at UCLA. They were implanting in-depth electrodes in humans into the hippocampus and amygdala.
0: Wow, that was, was that the pioneering work in that? or that's...
1: I, th- yeah, yeah, I think it was. Michael Crichton based his Terminal Man novel on the UCLA program, and uh, which is a, sort of an interesting premise that book yeah. had. Again, there's a technical problem with that, but <laughs> that's okay. But but I, I thought, well, oh, this is really sort of fascinating. And so there were a couple of patients that really were remarkable. I remember sitting with one, and when when the stimulation would occur, and it, they'd signal me when it occurred, I noticed this one patient would get this sort of strange look and say, I've seen that before, I I know this. And then every time she got stimulated, she would report seeing something. Uh, Initially, it was walking to a house. And then about five minutes later, she's, again, she's like, oh, I'm in the house now. And, oh, I'm in a room in the house. And so it was like the stream of unconsciousness. that's the only way I can describe it. Uh, My mouth dropped open, and it's like, what is going on here? So that was it. (laughs) Psychobiology. And here I was having a problem with what science am I going to pick because I liked all of them and I couldn't decide what level I liked. Did I like chemistry? Did I like cellular biology? I couldn't figure it out. Neuroscience has all of those things, and you can work at the molecular level, you can work at behavior, and everything in between with neural networks and and uh, 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 neuroanatomy and lesion studies. So you can, because there are so many levels of analysis that you can address the brain problems, that just really appealed to me because I liked different aspects of science so much. I wanted to be in a scientific career that let me do those things. Neuroscience doesn't. You still have to hone them down to like two or three main things. Otherwise, you'll be in school for your entire life.
0: Nobody wants that nope. now, do we? <laughs> um, so, your main focus is the hippocampus. Yeah. Um, this may be a really broad, um, so take it as you interpret it, but can you sort of set the stage for kind of the historical findings about? what the hippocampus does and uh, how it informs your view of its operation.
1: Sure. Well, after this experience at UCLA, I was able to go back to some older studies done by Heath and other people like that, where they did stimulation of human cortex and were able to sort of deduce what different parts of the cortex were doing based on this. So I love that. And uh, then uh, at the time, I was working with Eric Hogren and he described to me a number of things that fascinated me. H.M. was the first example. Uh, a man who had an uh, intractable uh, epilepsy, and he had both uh, hippocampal hippocampectomy bilaterally, so both hippocampi removed. And from that point on, he couldn't make a long-term memory. And, you know, uh, if only our experiments in the laboratory could be as neat and obvious as that one example is. It's, yeah. it's not. It isn't as neat and obvious as we're all led to believe. Uh, because he can learn things, but what he can learn, what the exceptions to the rule, are what are interesting because it, it led to the idea of memory systems in the brain, and that we just don't have memory; we have many different systems that encode different kinds of memory.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can you give us an idea of the stuff that you worked on in your postdoctoral work?
1: Yeah, we um, at that time molecular biology was really just starting to gain momentum in neuroscience. This is like 1990. 89, 90, and my mentor at the time, Joe Martinez, was really interested in uh, in, uh, gene isolation and maybe isolating genes from tissue following induction of long-term potentiation, which is a model for learning and memory. So with this sort of focus going towards molecular biology, at that time I thought, okay, this is the direction I want to go. So I did a postdoc for a year working with uh, Domingo Rivera who was a postdoc of his at the time. And so we worked together for a couple of years. I would produce the tissue, and, and then Lilo was his name, um, would, would start doing the um, subtractive hybridization to use normal brain tissue and LTP brain tissue and then subtract out the genes they have in common. Presumably what would be left would be the ones associated with LTP. And we kept getting closer and closer and closer. And uh, uh, then he left for his job. And uh, the, the genes of the, the genes of relevance were never really isolated to my knowledge. But one of the interesting things that we found was one of the genes that was a putative LTP associated gene was a um a VDJ recombination it uses a particular kind of of gene. And I'm trying to think what that is. Oh well, it doesn't matter. Basically uh we tried <laughs> we tried to get a, a gene and our efforts uh were sort of cut short. Lilo died in nineteen ninety I think he died early, very, very young, and very. It's very unfortunate because he was really talented, and uh, he was also a really good friend. So, uh, so it's nice I get to mention him.
0: Um, could you, since you mentioned LTP, um, could you tell us the
1: basic mechanisms sure. and its function? Yeah. Well, LTP is a is 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 a the the, the sort of classic mechanism whereby, it, uh, well, Donald Heverly proposed the first. Rule for it before it was even discovered, and that is if the synapse is active while the postsynaptic cell is firing, that means something significant is happening, and you change the strength of the synapse to make it stronger in that situation. So you really need presynaptic activity and the postsynaptic cell firing, and if you limited strengthening synapses to that event, then you would get an encoding of 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 the input that would allow for a retrieval. And now Donald Hebb just thought that it would make an ensemble, but he predicted before they were even uh, seen in uh, data ensembles, which he called uh, uh, cell assemblies, and sequences of ensembles, which he called phase sequences. So he really sort of predicted the kind of uh, unit neurophysiology that's being done in the hippocampus right now. That cell assemblies, that is, groups of neurons that are firing together to represent a memory, are firing together because the synapses among them strengthened. And that's uh, really what LTP is about. For somebody who's a cellular biologist, it's important because it's a way to strengthen a, uh, a synapse. But it's also, you know, the biochemistry behind it has to be between those two cells. You know, if, if whatever change is happening is at that synapse and among those two cells. So it's a tractable problem to determine how, what the molecular basis of memory is.
0: And eventually you moved on from LTP and... and The more general? I still do it. What is the
1: motivation? The LTP studies I do now are always in a context of, uh, in a behavioral paradigm where LTP either would be relevant or would be affected by the behavior. So some studies I did when when I first started at UTSA was the idea that uh, a novel environment would be an ideal situation to make the hippocampus plastic and more easy to write to. And so we found that when an animal is exploring a novel environment, if we induce LTP while they're exploring the environment, it's it's much larger and it lasts twice as long, several weeks. And from then, the whole idea of novelty uh, uh, just sort of stayed in the mix. It actually entered earlier when I had talked about working at UCLA. One of the things Eric Hallgren published in Science was that the hippocampus was one of the generators for the P300 of potential. And it's a complex response, and to this day, I think he would probably say, "Well, it's uh, there are probably multiple generators, and the medial temporal is one of them." But uh, but my view is that it's a it's a crucial part in identifying what's novel. I think the overlying cortices are also important, but but it's cortical structures that determine novelty in my mind.
0: And uh, very much related to your current work, I think, is the architecture of the hippocampus yeah. and how. The architecture informs its function. Yeah. Could you give us an overview of... Oh, of that was... Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm ready to answer. <laughs> yeah. That was an exciting time because uh, when I first started working in the CA3 region as a grad student, I was reading as much as I could, and I loved the idea of the recurrent collaterals and the idea that the perfum path took two routes to get to the same set of cells, direct in this transform. And I, I was just like, why would it do that? That's really interesting.
0: I had no idea. The perforant path is input from the cortex.
1: Right, yeah. to CA to the hippocampus. And so the perforant path projects both directly to the CA3 region of the hippocampus and also through the dentate gyrus, and then it's related to the CA3 region. And the CA3 also has feedbacks back onto itself, so it can associate its output with new input, which can store sequences. So now, the, I, I was fascinated by the two... The the single input being split up and then reconverging in CA3. But I had no idea what the recurrent collaterals would do, the f- CA3 feedback back to the CA3 region. And then, uh, oh gosh, it was uh, my second year in grad school, the Hopfield and Tank paper came out in PNAS, where he had a recurrent network that was mutually connected that was able to converge to a solution and do pattern completion. So the Hopfield networks. And I'm <laughs> like, this... This is important. This, and, and, and of course, my friends were like, well, Hot Fuel, all of the connections were symmetric and it doesn't really apply. And it's like, no, the basic idea is the reentrant network allows you to converge onto a solution.
0: Could you give us an example of how uh, pattern completion
1: would operate in the real world and yeah, how it's sure. important? Uh, let's see. Uh, when I'm walking on campus and I see somebody from behind. It, it really isn't that difficult to determine if it's somebody I know. If it's somebody I know, the little cues, the way they walk, maybe the shirt they're wearing, or the way their hair's cut, will make me think, oh, that's them. Because those little cues can be completed to me, oh, that's Ted, or that's David, or that's somebody else. So that's, that's one way uh, pattern completion can happen. Um, the people who are interested in nets that I was hanging around with at Berkeley were a little more uh, practical. They were computer scientists, and they said, oh, well, you know what they can do is that if you're looking far away and you see a rocket coming at you, and you're in an F-14 and this rocket's coming at you, you can get partial input, put it in a hot field, net, and you can determine, is that a Russian missile or is that a U.S. missile? Mm. And he loved this, and I said, well, you know, what difference does it make? They're both coming at you at a very high speed. (laughs) I'm not quite sure knowing who's hitting you is going... (laughs) Well <laughs>
0: For the news report, I
1: guess <laughs> we we had political differences, uh, but but the thing is, is, I understood what he was getting at. But that is pattern completion. Pattern completion is, is what we we do it every day without even knowing it. Um, we see the edge of a, a, a magazine and we know what the magazine is, and that's the one we want to get when we're waiting at the doctor's office. Uh, there's all sorts of examples. We do it every day, all the time, and pattern completion is not something that just the hippocampus does. It appears that the cortex does this generally in the visual cortex, in all sorts of cortices that we complete patterns, small visual patterns, auditory patterns. I don't know if you've ever had a song in your head.
0: Oh, absolutely. Earworms, it, right? Earworms, yeah. yeah.
1: And frequently I start singing the song sort of in the middle of the song. I can always go to the song to completion, Yeah. but I can never go backwards you ever noticed, you, uh, it's like, a, how did that song start out? So I remember the lyrics sort of midway yeah. through the song, but I can't get back to the first lyric. That's because you're always moving in that forward direction when you're completing sequences.
0: Do you have a song that was particularly bugs
1: you? <laughs> um, gosh. Duran Duran, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking more of Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. Run yeah. Like Hell. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've gotten money stuck in my head a time or two.
1: Yeah. So... With um, the guitar that really sort of can't, can't get out of your head once you see now it's started.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have uh, pattern completion in the hippocampus. Uh, what are its other functions?
1: Well, for right now, it looks like there's a completion that would be able to compl- uh, complete because the dentate gyrus can initiate encoding in CA3, and CA3 can learn sequences uh, because its output is fed back into itself when new inputs come in, so the new input can feed with the output of CA3. You can get these sequences. That's, that's one thing. But also, uh, and what I think, is that the CA3 also is the memory store in the hippocampus. In, in David Maher's model of the hippocampus, it was the heart of the hippocampus, where all of the memories of the hippocampus are really stored. And, and so uh, when I thought of novelty detection in CA3, uh, I remember the familiarity mechanisms that are seen in the overlying cortex. And there... This, it's, it's for stimulus novelty, basically. It's very simple novelty detection, but the stimulus is compared in the network. You know, it, it, the, the 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 pattern itself is compared to the pattern that's stored within the network, and the network serves as the template for a match or a mismatch. And it's really rapid and it's fast. And I thought, well, you know, I think the CA three is more involved with novelty detection, and I did some back working. And there's all of these fMRI studies and P300 studies that show the medial temporal lobe is involved with, with novelty detection. And definitely medial temporal lobe is involved with novelty detection. The P300 response, if it isn't CA3, it's uh, certainly part of a medial temporal lobe structure. But th- that's, that's ground zero for novelty detection. Uh, I really don't know anybody else who thinks other structures might be involved with novelty detection. There's a, a new group uh, group. that's it's, it's really like a gang that's sort of converging, and and they think the frontal lobe prefrontal cortex is involved with novelty detection as well, and it may be, but I think in a peripheral way. But you know, the prefrontal cortex apparently does everything. Mm-hmm. So so you know, it's a 6 do laundry. So uh, <laughs> so it's, it's it's while it's very popular now, I, I'm not yeah. putting it down. It's just really popular. So it's going to get uh, uh, a catch-all. So. Yeah, it's going to get implicated in a lot of things that it will eventually have nothing to do with, but. I bet it has a lot to do with uh, working memory and it certainly has a lot to do with behavioral inhibition because I, I, know, I know the frontal lobe is needed to keep uh, one's behavior in line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have some personal experience with that. We'll just we'll just leave it there, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. My parole officer would prefer that. <laughs> um, I
0: noticed the ankle monitor. On yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, what are you currently working on? What kind of questions are you asking in your well, basically most top, recent work?
1: My three major hypotheses that I have that the, that novelty detection initiates theta rhythm, CA3 mediates novelty detection, and that uh, 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 that the dentate is always performing pattern separation. It's only during periods of cholinergic theta when the granules can actually influence CA3 and allow LTP to occur there.
0: Um, cholinergic theta. Can you oh, give us a little boy. breakdown of that? So Yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah. Well, theta rhythm is this oscillation that we've seen a lot of brain structures. And we've implicated it in binding. That is how different brain areas can coordinate their work by oscillating together. And theta rhythm is just one oscillation. It's about 8 to 12 hertz. Actually, lower, 6 to 12 hertz. And the one type of theta rhythm I'm interested in is one that's accompanied with the release of acetylcholine by the same structure that paces all theta rhythm, and that's the medial septum. But in some situations, the medial septum not only induces theta, it induces a type of theta that also involves release of acetylcholine. And when you do that, it changes the characteristics of theta a bit. It's a lower frequency, but it also causes different cells to fire at different times than regular theta. And that's the theta I think that's important.
0: Has there ever been uh, a moment in the lab where you got a very puzzling result and... It turned out to be really interesting upon further investigation. Or maybe that's every
1: single, you know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, this is a great story <laughs> for me because it's it. very illustrative. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we were looking at the synapse, the Mossy Fibre to CA3 synapse, and we were looking at the conditions it needed to induce LTP. And I would mentioned the uh, LTP requires pre- and postsynaptic activity. But this synapse requires something else. It requires the release of a peptide by the terminals. They're opioid peptides. And they mostly block inhibition. So I thought the, the it's it's a contribution to inducing LTP because when you block inhibition, it's really easy to get plasticity. So I thought that's what I was doing. Well, we looked at uh, all of the conditions we needed to get LTP, and what we found was is that if we only gave some of The conditions. For instance, you need presynaptic activity, postsynaptic activity, and these peptides. If I gave any one of them, nothing much happened to the synapse. It was pretty stable. But if you give all three of them, you get LTP. So that's great. But my advisor, Joe Martinez, said, well, you know, you really should look at uh, what each of the pairs of the three things were doing. So pre and postsynaptic activity alone without peptide, presynaptic activity with the peptide. post-synaptic activity with a peptide. Those are three conditions. And I was like, why would you look at that? You need all three to get the LTP. Why would you look at the other things? And so I did the experiments after much protest. (laughs) And what happened was something I didn't expect. It depressed. The synapse is depressed. So you need three things to get LTP at the synapse. Any one thing doesn't do anything. But if you get two of the three things, if you almost are there, then it does the opposite. It depresses. And this is the, creates sort of like a Mexican hat kind of output, where it's almost like a lateral inhibition to where a synapse that gets close to potentiating actually will be inhibited and drop out of the representation. And that's a way to make a sparse representation. It's also a way to do a number of other really interesting computational things. It's referred to as the BCM rule, Bean Cooper, and Monroe. And, uh, uh, named by uh, four of the people who discovered it. But basically, uh, what they say is that you need a certain amount of postsynaptic depolarization to get LTP. If you don't have the depolarization, you won't get it. But if you're very close to the threshold to induce LTP, instead of inducing a little LTP, you'll induce a long term depression. And it, it, that kind of rule is really pretty amazing because it can do something as simple as contrast enhancement. But it also can do uh, computations that are really pretty amazing and that are really very um, efficient and low capacity. And uh, as a rule, what it allows is for a local rule at the synapse to govern global patterns in a whole network. So it's one of those situations where you see a, um, if you use these BCM rules in a network, you can you can actually, and you give it something like visual information, it will actually uh, deconstruct the inputs to give you cells that respond to bars or bars at a particular angle. You know, all of the phenomena we see in the visual cortex sort of emerges from networks that have BCM-like rules. And that's just one example, but I think it's really powerful, and I think it's just a general rule for how the brain organizes itself. And it's instantiated in a bunch of ways. The original way with post depolarization, but also these unusual ways with peptides and whatnot.
0: So sometimes we like to hear uh, about the nitty-gritty details of techniques used in neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Can you describe your favorite or what you use in your lab mainly?
1: Well, I think probably the most interesting things are uh, uh, the ability to record from awake, freely-moving animals. And... And that's because, uh, I, I really like rats. They're really cute animals. I, I, first time I saw them, I this terrified me to death because they were scary.
0: Have you ever had a pet rat? Yeah.
1: No, I hadn't, but I could easily have one now and I could have, I'd be, you know, they have cat ladies. I could be a rat guy. <laughs> they're just, they're very gentle, sweet creatures. And, and so, uh, Carol Barnes and Bruce McNaughton were the people who taught me this technique. And, uh, And since then, I've been using it regularly because it allows me to collect data and work with the little guys, too, because they're exploring novel environments. And they're doing all sorts of stuff that, you know, uh, 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 doesn't require uh, any any kind of blood and guts kind of (laughs) manipulation, which I would prefer to avoid personally. I just don't like that. I like behavior a lot.
0: Great. What do you enjoy the most about being a scientist? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, I'm I to have to think hard about that one
0: sure most um, or general features of uh, that are enjoyable about being a scientist I,
1: I guess other scientists because I find myself relating to them better than anybody else on the planet because we speak in sort of the same language and not to put anyone down, but I know other scientists are saying, "Oh boy, we know he's off his rocker if he says that." But I really like being around other scientists. I think they they have a they have a a, a spin free world, and and we we uh, realize that some things are facts, some things are speculation, and some things are not facts, not true, and we know that.
0: Interests, hobbies outside of neuroscience. Oh gosh.
1: I like sports cars and I like driving fast. So that's my 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 thing. So you own a sports car? Sort of. It's sort of. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's well. I had a convertible BMW, but I totaled it. So so you total it? Spun out on a really on a racetrack? No. Okay. It was a freeway. Oh wow! But I was basically racing. Yeah. It was an oil slick, actually. We had gotten wet, and I... It, I it, was, it was completely... Environmental conditions. Yeah. I was going 30 miles an hour, <laughs> but it was enough to bend the frame when I hit the retaining wall to, to... When I cried, I loved that car. It was a significant relationship, me and that car.
0: So do you watch racing now, or...?
1: Oh, no. Okay. Uh, I'm not... Uh, uh, other, other hobbies. I um, uh, politics. I love politics. Uh, I, I love politics mostly because it's so unlike science. It isn't rational and understandable and solid. It's very irrational. And a lot of people have their con, their political views based on things that have nothing to do with the actual politics. And that fascinates me. Some of my best friends are really conservative. And I love talking with them because I can see the way they see the world. And I can sort of understand why they get that kind of view. Because I'm, I'm from Berkeley. I'm a Liberal and I'm a yellow dog Democrat, but I don't think conservatives are stupid, and I think that they have a different way of looking at the world, and that I don't think is any less valid than mine. When it comes to science, though, that's where we differ. <laughs> that's when conservatives and me uh, sort of uh, uh, draw a line. But uh, but but uh, mostly I, I have to keep politics out of my teaching and stuff. So when people politicize my scientific teaching and teaching of scientific facts. Evolution and global warming are really important scientific facts, uh, then I'll, I'll, I'll get active. But that stuff I do in my spare time.
0: Great. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to share? No,
1: yeah, well, thank you for listening yeah. to me. <laughs> Absolutely. It was Rand. wonderful.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.